Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and it's Wednesday, March 25th, 2009. This is the Future of Education. Tonight we're doing a special show. It's the Close in 2009 Takeaways uh, Review. Kind of a first time for doing this, although I looked back in my records and noticed that I did something like this after NAC last year. Um, so maybe not the first time, but the first time for COSIN. Uh, if you're new to the Illuminate environment, then I just want to make sure that you know how to, to manage your screen. There are some emoticons at the bottom of the, part of the this participant window. The smiley face, clapping hand, uh, confusion face, and then thumbs down. You can raise your hand by clicking on the hand with the up arrow. And I really like the wide view. If you go up to View Layouts and select the wide layout, I find it does a better job for me of allowing me to see the chat window. If you send a message, just be aware that even though you can send a private message, um, there's a drop-down box that lets you send to another user. Those of us who are moderators can actually see all the messages that go through. So we are a small group, but let's figure out where people are from. There's a wand with a bright red uh, star at the end of it next to the whiteboard. And if you click on that and click on where you are in the country or the world, we'll get to see where you are. I'm only seeing two show up, so maybe uh, there's three, four. Good. That may be all we've got tonight. It looks like we're all in the U.S. There's Tammy. Okay, Tammy, we've just clicked on where we are on the map. And I'll give you the permissions to do that. There's a little wand with a bright dot at the end. Looks like a little star next to the whiteboard. And you can indicate where you're from on the map. But probably not a surprise <coughs> that it's all U.S. as uh, in itself probably is largely populated by people from the U.S. Okay, so uh, with me tonight are Corey Dahl and Jill Bates. Uh, why don't I let you, the two of you, introduce yourselves, and then I have uh, I have a short outline of what I thought we might accomplish tonight, and and you can uh, pitch in. Hi, this is Corey Dahl. I'm an instructional technology facilitator at uh, an educational service unit in Neely, in Nebraska. And with me is Jill Bates, and I'll let her introduce herself. Thanks, Corey. Um, I'm the assistant administrator at ESU-8. Um, it's a rural area of northeast Nebraska, and we serve a seven-county area. Thanks, both of you, and thanks, for uh, Corey, for kind of pushing for this event. Um, again, I think it's worth doing, and, and even if there are only a few of us, I think it's kind of a fun precedent to set that we might be um, kind of figuring out how to do a, uh, a reflection on a conference afterwards. Um, we, I've given everybody access to the microphone, so but before you click on that and start talking, if you wouldn't mind raising your hand, that'll help. I thought it would be interesting to kind of take a, a you know a sort of a large scale view, um, a bird's eye view of COSIN. Because it is different than other conferences, and I had just come from the Q conference in California, and and then went to COSIN and noticed a, a pretty significant difference. Q was largely about the tools, sort of practical in-classroom use, and of course COSIN being aimed at technology decision makers, felt like it was a lot more about policy. But but more than any other year, I think for me COSIN nailed it, and I'll tell you why I'm thinking that. One was for the first time at COSIN, I really felt like I had good access to wireless. Um, I mean, it was not without its glitches, but um, I remember last year in DC being down in the basement and just not having any access to the web. And number two, it felt like what had been on the fringes last year, which was Web 2.0, really became kind of a focal point of the conversation. Did anybody else experience that? Yes, uh, you know we we thought the conference was was incredible, and, and with the timing of the Web 2.0, uh, 
Um, we just we're constantly teaching that to teachers in Nebraska and describing what Web 2.0 is and some of the Web 2.0 technology. So we thought the timing and the theme of the COSIN conference was great for us, which is really why we attended, right, Jill? Right, right. And this was our very first time attending the COSIN conference, so we don't have anything to compare it with. But we were uh, very, very pleased and um, kind of blown away by what we experienced. Yeah, had anybody besides me been there last year and, and really felt the difference? Yeah, Tammy, feel feel free to, to grab the mic if you'd like as well. Okay, so having said that, another really big takeaway, there were two other big takeaways for me. One was we set up uh, Linux machines for the email gardens. And email gardens at COSIN have typically just been sort of mobbed because there wasn't great internet access. It felt like this year that was different. We, we, you know, there wasn't this huge, there weren't lines at the email stations. And I was trying to figure that out and uh, was driving back to the, um, to the airport and someone said, well, uh, this year everybody had mobile devices and they were able to check their email on their mobile device. And I thought, that's really probably true. Uh, the other sort of takeaway for me was that even though the conference was about Web 2.0, we're still a long ways away from having conference sessions that are, um, I think, uh, reflective of, of Web 2.0. I mean, here we were in an all, the, for those of us who attended the all-day session on Web 2.0, the pre-conference day, um, and I felt very much like I was just a passive recipient which is why I, I began to Twitter so actively, because there was an irony for me of being in an all-day session on Web 2.0, but just being a recipient. Any responses to those two experiences? Yeah, I attended uh, uh, the, the pre-session as, as did Jill, and, but we went to different sessions. I went to the Web 2.0 symposium, um, and uh, and I also was thinking the same thing. You know, it was definitely good uh, to listen to, but um, yeah, it, it's one thing to talk about Web 2.0, but then it's another thing to to go that that extra distance. Um, like you were doing, Steve, you were you were um, twittering, as was I. Um, not quite as quick as you though, but uh, I was twittering just some of the things people were saying um, back to people in Nebraska and people that follow me, and I was just sharing some of their thoughts. So. I appreciated that. It was the first time for me that I had really used this um, this search feature within. Okay, so somebody, Corey, you must have closed down that window because it. Uh, if you're a moderator and you close it, it closes for everybody. So I'm going to pull it back up again. You can move it to the side if it's in your way. Let me do that. Search. This is the first time I'd really used the hashtag extensively, and the tag for COSIN had been COSIN09, pound sign COSIN09. Um, I'm not closing that. Oh, there we go. Sorry about that. I'm not sure why it seems to be closing. Maybe it's not closing for you, and it's just closing. Yeah, uh, for me. We, weren't, we weren't closing that either, so I'm not sure what's going on, Steve. So it was very interesting for me to to see that, and I ended up um, I actually ended up creating a different Twitter account so that I wouldn't be inundating my regular followers with uh, messages from Cosin, but that was just for conferences, and um, I posted over 400 messages. Now I used it sort of as a way of keeping notes and also providing people who weren't there with some access, which is maybe just kind of a poor man's version of actually streaming sessions. And I noticed that um, Wes Fryer was doing a fair amount of live blogging. And I don't know if he did any streaming, but I wondered if you know, he was getting into any kind of hot water for um, with, with Cosum with regard to the legalities and who owns the, the material. Tammy, did, you, did that come up at all in any discussions that you had? Um, Steve, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound great. Sure, you sound great. Okay, good. Um, I I was actually the person that recruited um, Wesley to come and, and blog and stuff, so I haven't heard anything. I really personally encouraged it. 
Um, I, I guess I don't see any negative issues with that. Do you? No, in fact, I think it's great, but I know that it's been a source of um, of great discussion at conferences as to you know how much you allow people to be providing the conference material at the time of the conference, both from the standpoint of being sensitive to the to the ownership issues of the conference uh, conveners and the presenters, but also the question of do you, you know, if you provide a lot of this conference material remotely, do you end up not having people attend? I personally think you get the opposite effect. But that does segue us, Tammy, into the question of uh, showing the keynotes later uh, for charge. Has that actually happened yet? That aspect. Um, I, I saw the email and I, I was really interested in it. So I wasn't involved with the keynotes for charge. And I guess those um, issues are really interesting um, to me. I guess as I get farther in Web 2.0, I think that the more that I share, the more that I'm open, even in my own consulting, the more things grow. And um, I, I also agree that the more that we Twittered, people who have never heard of COSIN um, we're asking more about it, and I think it's good branding. I think we might get more people coming to the conference because um, they saw what quality it is and, and the networking. I would have to agree with that. I have to um, as I was twittering uh, and describing some of my experiences, uh, somebody from Nebraska was asking about the conference and said, "Wow, you know," and they needed to attend that conference. So I, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah, it sure felt to me that Cosin got a pretty good buzz this year uh, because of the Azure blogosphere or the social media around it. Um, maybe that was just my own impression, but I felt like it was it actually maybe got a better buzz than Q had gotten. I guess one question I have for the group is um, I I'm wondering if maybe we want more hashtags in the future and sort of like little communities of practice around interest areas instead of just one massive hashtag for the whole conference. And I'm just kind of curious what people think about that. I'm going to raise my hand and reply to that one, Tammy, um, because I've thought a lot about this. And, and if everybody had been t tweeting as much as I was I don't think it would have been a good experience to be watching the Cosin09 hashtag. Maybe even it wasn't a good experience just because of all that I was doing for somebody who didn't want all of that information. But I um, there's a there's a degree to which you then get to a level of complexity that's kind of hard to manage, and I don't know how well a simple tool that gets sort of MacGyvered into say the hashtags would work if you had multiple hashtags for different say sessions. Um, Jackie's saying overload. I'm wondering if she's meaning the same thing. But I sort of felt like uh, if you had multiple hashtags, it would be hard to keep track of. Yeah, you know, and that's interesting to know about different sessions because the the NIDA conference in Nebraska, that's this April, we're going to you know hashtag for NIDA, but that's something to think about prior to setting that up for the NIDA conferences. Maybe we do need multiple, maybe strands of NIDA, or or maybe some from from different sessions. Uh, you know, I agree with what you're saying. So people can hashtag out and and, and also follow the responses um, from certain areas. Well, so we're kind of drilling down a little bit on the the use of social media to, uh, with regard to the conference. And I'm not sure that how much time we would want to necessarily spend on that. I, I mean, I'm finding it very interesting. Um, but I'm very happy also to kind of move on a little bit more to what I felt were some of the kind of content issues of the conference. Um, Corey, did you have some things in mind you wanted to be sure to accomplish tonight? If you're talking, we're not hearing you, Corey. Okay. Okay. Um, what Jill and I were interested in doing uh, really was just talking about some of the some of the things that we learned down there and some of the reoccurring themes that we thought we heard, and then what we turn around and then share uh, with our you know people in Nebraska. You know what, what we took away from you know national speakers and what, what kind of the broad issues are. 
So that's a great place to start. So tell us, you know, what have you been telling people about the conference? Not just Corey and Jill, but but the others of you who are here. Um, you know, what 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 things stuck with you? Well, I call those Velcro stories. You know, like the little when you're walking through a field and the burrs get stuck on you. What actually stuck with you? Yeah, go ahead, Corey. Well, I'll go ahead and start. And just one of the things that really stuck out with me was that uh, I was a former elementary principal. Is that and Jill, and Jill agrees with this, is that to get a lot of these things done and get people to buy into Web 2.0 and advances in, in technologies, you have to have staff development, one. And two, you have to have, uh, you have, to have that administrative support, right, Jill? And especially uh, professional development for the principals. I think I heard that theme kind of overriding a lot of the presentations. If your administrators don't know what the tools are, they're not going to let teachers use them. Right. So that, those were a couple that really came to mind right away. So I'm interested in, in drilling down on one of those uh, with our group peers in particular, and, and that's sort of the principal administrator level. One of the things that I think we may have learned over the last couple of years was that providing uh, tools like social networking or in specific Classroom 2.0 provided teachers with an ability to see the benefit that they would get personally from the technologies rather than just talking about implementing them in the classroom. I keep thinking that the same thing is ne is needed for administrators, some kind of a tool or network or set of experiences that would allow administrators to actually personally benefit from Web 2.0 in their own practice in a way that would, would open the door to um, bringing Web 2.0 into the curricular side. Any thoughts on that? So no one's responded. Did I actually have my mic on? Give me a smiley face if if that long-winded question was actually heard. <laughs> Thanks, Sal. So you know maybe that's not needed. Do you, do you feel as though Jill, the the, the uh, principals and technology decision makers and administrators uh, are are getting it without necessarily having to experience it? Mm -hmm. I don't really know. Um, we just surveyed our principals and superintendents within our seven county area and asked them um, from a list of, of Web 2.0 tools which ones would they like to learn more, more about. And most of them checked everything and then added the comment, I don't know anything about any of these enough to even make a decision about them. So I kind of think your point about um, exposing them to the Web 2.0 um, tools and then letting them experience them personally first is a really good idea. I, I agree with that. And then some of the uh, things that we threw out was, uh, and that were the highest rated right now were uh, Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> we also, you know, threw in things like Facebook, because obviously kids are using Facebook, you know, and Google Docs, and just on down the line. And for Teacher the most part, too. yeah, and TeacherTube, YouTube, the whole works. And we just thought that they need to experience them to understand what teachers want and what kids are doing and things like that. So we're planning on creating staff development for administrators based around those Web 2.0 tools just to show them what, what it is that they are and how they work. I agree. I think it's really important that the principals um, become familiar with these tools and see how important they are and then encourage the teachers to use them. So uh, thanks, Al. So Bill, are you saying no curriculum leaders 2.0 don't do a curriculum leaders 2.0, or there are no curriculum leaders who are doing 2.0? I'm not quite sure where the emphasis is there. And Sal, thanks for just grabbing the mic. That's uh, you've set a good example. Well, so you're saying it's not the principals, but it should be the curriculum leaders. Interesting. So Jill and, and Corey, it sounds like you brought back some sort of high-level kind of uh, desires, and specifically around social media. Okay, we'll let you take the mic back, Sal. I, I'm not sure if I, I was heard the last time. Um, I was thinking more in terms of the principals 
um, really learning the 2.0 tools and then encouraging them to be used in the classroom. Because I'm right now experiencing a principal who's actually young but really doesn't see the value of technology in the classroom and then doesn't um, really encourage the teachers to use it. Go ahead, Corey. Thanks, Al. Um, you know, hearing that just sends a shiver down my spine. Honestly, I mean, I don't consider myself old or young. I'm in middle age, I suppose, 40. I don't know what that qualifies me as. But to hear a new principal coming in and not grasping that or getting it or embracing it, um, I, I equate those thoughts often to an older generation of people who are ready to retire. You know, and, and I've had that discussion with people. So, yeah, I mean, wow. Um, I don't know. I don't know quite what to say about that, other than it's our job, maybe as staff developers or ASU people, um, is to just help get that word out of the importance of that. Go, Peggy. Everybody, um, I've been silent long enough. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, tech leaders, administrators, right from superintendents to principals down to custodians in the building should all be using because the whole purpose of this Web 2.0 tools is communication and collaboration. So they shouldn't be in these little um, privatized pockets of usage like just the social studies teachers or just the tech people in the district. You know, it should really be an effort to get everybody involved in using them to see their value. But what I took away from COSIN, which was really, really valuable to me, was this was the first time that I had been invited to present my work to administrators and decision makers. You know, I've been invited to present it to tech people, to teachers, to virtual world consortiums. But this was the first time that I had the room full of people scratching their heads with superintendents and administrators and principals and what have you. And that was such a valuable experience for me because this was the first time I got to show them the learning. This wasn't just another sad, trendy, cutting edge, jump on this next, you know, why should we invest in this? This was a, a real platform for me to show them the pedagogical soundness of using virtual worlds. So I, I, for me, it was really, um, it was really a valuable experience. Hey, just got some uh, props there. Peggy, Corey says that your session was his favorite. Actually, that's very validating to hear. Um, hey, yes, and I have to. Uh, I sat in the back, and I remember after it was over, Peggy came back and was noticing the look on my face because I just, you know, I could tell Peggy, you know, again, I'm giving you props. You get it. Um, you're taking kids and doing these things that are just fantastic. I just wanted me. I wanted to stand up at the end of yours because you know, you're you're. Uh, it's all about engaging kids, okay? And you're obviously engaging kids with their use of. Um, you know, um, uh, Second Life and things like that. And um, anyway, I just had to throw that in there. So someday when I get to New York, we'll come visit. Sorry, but and, Peggy, and are I you do, saying? I do appreciate. I'm sorry. I do appreciate too that you recognize that this is about kids and engagement and what have you. But I mean, the latest slant, the latest lens that I'm really pushing the whole piece with virtual worlds is professional development. I mean, especially with the economic situation that we're in right now, um, getting teachers into second life for professional development is such a no-brainer. Um, we always have the hardware little hill to climb. It does demand a, a pretty robust bandwidth and, and graphics card, but I mean, we're just about all there anyway at home. And this is one of those ways that you get a real personal, immersive experience with a relatively low um, learning curve if you bring people in correctly. Um, I always recommend bringing people in through, through the ISTE portal. And, and then there's a whole wealth of professional development available to them. I mean, all those experts that you have to travel to conferences, sometimes across the country, in order just to sit in a room and, and hear them keynote, are like there in this intimate little space with you where you get to interact with them one-on-one. -on -one. You get to send them a, a friend request and, and go back to them later. And um, I really think that the professional development side of virtual worlds is, is something that people should start taking notice of. Bill, I think you have your hand up. I want to get to you. If it's OK with you, I want to drill down just for one second with Peggy. Because Peggy, it sounded like you were really appreciative of hearing that from Corey. 
And as much as we've talked about sort of a dramatic change from last year to this year at COSIN, did you still not feel that that message got through? Did you feel as though you were you were speaking to people who were scratching their heads at the time? Well, I, I'm usually speaking to people scratching their heads. I'm, I'm kind of used to that. I expect that. I, I think the message got through. I, I got some pretty positive feedback and a, a lot of good questions. You know, it's usually I judge my effectiveness of getting the information across by how good the questions are. And, um, and there's been some feedback via email since then and what have you. So I think I did, if, if I didn't convince them, I know I at least planted the right seed. I feel pretty confident in saying that. And, and that, that, that's what it's all about to me, you know, just getting it out there and spreading the fire and starting to plant little pockets of, of awareness and innovation. Um, and I think, I, I think I'd like to think I was able to accomplish a piece of that, sure. It sounds like you were. Bill, did you want to take the mic? Do you know how to do that? You click on the uh, mic button. Maybe you didn't raise your yeah, hand. Yeah, sure. There you um, go. I guess uh, what I had found out that as you're talking about professional development and typically what happens in in a school is that they will always come to you and ask, well, hey, we'd like to do this or do this. And my response is, well, you should actually talk to your professional development committee and put it in there so that it gets on an agenda because typically in a school they're doing professional development days, which again is a workforce issue, a year in advance. But that never seems to happen. So driving it from the principal's end, because they usually won't put that in there because really that's the staff's job to do. So we find it hard to get at professional development, whether it be asking for these tools, into a professional development committee or team where they ask for it then plan for it. It just never seems to happen. If they can get by that, I think you'd get more, you know, push towards these things. And really not coming from the principal standpoint. Yes, the principal has to support it. But we just seem that it's the teachers that don't really that's why I was saying that curriculum leaders and, and in most cases in every building the principal is the curriculum leader, but they also have teams for each department that are the curriculum leaders, and that's kind of where I think this really should start. Does anybody want to reply to that? I'd like to give you another example. This is Peggy. Um, another example of uh, the trickle-down or the trickle-up effect. I think teachers, and again, I'm speaking generically now, um, I think teachers are more receptive to innovation and new tools and new ideas when they come from a peer group um, rather than the quote-unquote expert. However, in terms of getting Web 2.0 tools available for professional development, nine times out of ten, I'll hear teachers saying, yeah, we really want to try that, but it's blocked. So that has to come from the administration. They've got to unblock Skype. They've got to unblock YouTube. They've got to unblock Twitter. And, and use it and model it. So you know, it's 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 really a the dichotomy of, of it needs to the desire or the willingness has to come from the the practitioner, but the encouragement and the freedom to make mistakes has to come from the administration. And that's why I'm always touting the district that I work in. I mean, my my superintendent and all my principals are on Skype all day long. Um, they have all just started using Twitter. They support the in-services that I do in Google Docs, in Google Ops for Education, rather. In, I do an in-service called Web 2.0. I do an in-service called Teaching in Second Life. And you know, they don't pay the teachers to take these in-services, but the teachers get credits towards salary increments. So there's that, you know, there's all those pieces in place that even if you get, we've kind of divided our teachers into three generic groups, the, the tech savvy, the tech resistant, and the tech willing. So even if you get a tech-resistant teacher in there who's really only doing it for the salary increments, you know, chances are you're going to hook them on one tool, and usually it's Skype. When they find out that they can talk to their relatives in Ireland or their kids in college or whatever for free over the internet, you got them, and then you just go from there. Yeah, I would say I would say I agree with you, Peggy. And then the same thing with Google Earth. We were we were demonstrating that the other day, and the first place this room full of teachers went to was their hometown, their place where they grew up, and things like that. So it's again, it's just exposing them to it, 
and then you know, and then they'll they'll create meaning out of that. But I still keep coming back to it in the end. It's you know, I kept hearing the reoccurring theme, and Cozen was whether it was Marco Torres or Don Tapscott or whoever it was. Is what are kids doing before school, and what are they doing after school? I keep coming back to engagement. I keep coming back to if they're going to meet kids uh, at somewhere that that they understand and some something that they're going to use in college and, and beyond. That uh, if if they're doing those things. Um, you know they're gonna have less discipline. I'm assuming, and, and just on and on down the road. So uh, I'm gonna tentatively shift gears here a little, but it doesn't mean we can't go back or you can't supersede me and, and keep talking about that. But um, it, uh, a couple of things brought me back to Marco Torres, um, that specific reference, and then Peggy talking about um, being able to make mistakes. What did you think of the keynotes? Uh, for me, I felt, you know, aside from the fact that, that, that again, we were being uh, having knowledge poured into us, I thought that they were really good uh, choices. Did you agree? Yeah, I'll have to say I really liked I Don really Tapscott, liked, too, uh, but I liked uh, Don Tapscott. I really thought he had a good message, and Marco Torres, just very inspirational. I didn't get as much. Maybe it was because I was tired out of the out of the end keynote, but I really liked what they had to say. I just wasn't as uh, entertained, but um, uh, I really thought the message of Marco Marco Torres and Don Tapscott really hit home. And uh, I I participated in a webinar last night. I um, listened to Don Tapscott give that same uh, spiel again, just about. About everything you know that, that he talks about with growing up digital and so on. Joe, did you have anything to add to that? Yeah. Well, so that's so funny because I, uh, that was my one response to Don Tapscott. I don't know what Cosin paid him to be there. Cause I'm sure it wasn't cheap. But I actually heard all of that material before, and I know that's not fair, and it's not fair to Don, you know, because he's, you know, he's, he's speaking on it and making a living. But it was a little bit disappointing to me because I'd heard all of that same material from him before. Whereas Stephen Johnson, I hadn't heard before, and that's not Stephen or Don's responsibility, but I hadn't heard what Stephen Johnson had to say. So I really loved that, and I hadn't heard Marco Torres at length like that. So I really loved that. Um, and maybe that's just the the difficulty of having keynote speakers is that they're going to bring material that you know they've used elsewhere. Uh, I'll I'll do some I'll give out some information very quickly about some things I really like. Uh, uh, Stephen Johnson said. Um, that the tool gets shaped by the users, and boy, have I really appreciated uh, that thought, which which I'd had in my mind. I'm not sure I had coalesced as as eloquently, but the idea that uh, you know, in part, what we're seeing is a transformation in terms of how tools get adopted, and that's just such a, a big part of it is that we are taking tools and then we're redefining uh, them based on our needs. You know, Twitter especially, but Flickr, which was not a photo sharing. Service or Ning, which was not a social networking service when they started. I thought those were amazing. Uh, that was an amazing sort of insight for me. I thought uh, Marco Torres really drove us toward learner-centric environments, and and that again was just a, a real big takeaway for me. Other thoughts? Yeah, I, I just I just typed it into chat. Um, I've heard Di inside it out and around and through and read his books and what have you. But I think you and I are not the typical audience member of something like Cosin. I think he was really the ideal selection for a keynote because I bet a lot of what he had to say was brand new to, to the majority of that audience. You know, the, the whole concept of the uh, grown-up digital and, and, and the the makeup of, of the learners that are sitting in front of us today. I mean, even if they know it on some level, you know, to hear it from a, a New York Times bestseller author in a room full of your peers, you know, you really have to sit there and re-examine what you know about this, what you feel about this, and what you can do about it. I, I thought he was a powerful choice. I think he ended kind of flat, um, and I told him so. <laughs> I went up to him later and I said to him, Don, you could have ended that conference with a bang by showing my kids video, and he kind of got this blank look on his face, and I said, you haven't seen it yet, have you? And he said, no, Peggy, I'm sorry. I haven't had a chance. I haven't seen it. So I, I did my, you know, my, my mother hen thing and just looked at him and said, you need to see it, and walked away, and he emailed me about an hour later and said, oh, my God, I've seen it. Uh, 
it's powerful. Thank you. I'll use it in the future. So I got grat a little gratification for my kids there. But um, you know, I thought he, he attempted to do something interactive with the audience at the end, and he didn't have the right tech support, and it didn't work. And I kind of felt like it was a it was a little bit of a disappointing ending to his what could have been a really powerful keynote. I was uh, thinking, you know, as you said that too, I knew that gaming could be valuable, but it is important, like you said, Peggy, to hear those things again. And I went home and even shared that with my wife. We were thinking about the games that my kids were playing and how some of them are those thinking games. And again, just like you said, I knew that stuff, but when you hear it, and I'd heard it before, and then you go home and it just, it just maybe keeps that on the, on, just at the forefront and even my thinking as a parent. Uh, how some games can be good depending on what type of games they are and, and the, the skills that they're learning from playing it. So I, I agree with you, Peggy. Yeah, you know, it is very interesting to kind of compare conferences, but one of the things that I love so much about EDUCON at Science Leadership Academy, and, and they're not the only ones that do it, was the active use of students being involved. And I hadn't even thought about that uh, with regard to COSIN, but uh, that would be a great addition. That would be, in fact, Tammy, I hope you're taking notes. I'll try and remember uh, that one as well. This is Jill. My favorite um, session at COSIN was where I heard a student panel from um, one of the New Tech high schools in Texas speak about their project-based learning. And um, each student talked about the reason that he or she was attending the school. Some of them were there because their parents said, you will go there. Um, others were there um, because they were interested in the technology. But all of them said, I love to come to school. And for me to hear kids be so excited about their high school education was just absolutely a high point for me. And I loved the student interaction. Okay, so uh, um, Tammy, if you are taking those, <laughs> there's another thing I've, I wanted to bring up that I think would be very interesting to get. Of course, this isn't a representative group, but um, uh, COSIN does a lot of panels, and they also do this combining of speakers. So two or more speakers will submit to speak on a topic, and COSIN will actually combine them into what are fairly short segments. And it looks like Jim Klein is in here now. And, and Jim and I actually were assigned to share a session. And you know, truth be told, there really wasn't time for both of us to speak. Um, did anybody else experience that or feel that, that um, any discomfort with that model? Or did you like it? Okay, so I'm wondering if I clicked the mic button when I asked that last question. Did you hear me ask a question about uh, combining sessions? Okay. <laughs> it just didn't generate an answer, so I was thinking, maybe well, I didn't click the mic button. Uh, I, I visited the New Tech High in Sacramento. I don't know what school district that's in. I do know that any student in California could actually attend that school if they wanted to. Uh, it's not really about the technology. They're actually probably going to change the name um, because it's really about project-based learning. And I was shocked that there were some really sort of basic, they're not using blogging or wikis at all. Uh, they were unfamiliar. They're doing this beautiful thing with student portfolios. But they're teaching the kids Dreamweaver in order for them to create their personal portfolios. And uh, you know, all I had to say was Weebly. Um, the, you know, the idea that the students would actually you know, be tasked with building a, a, their own portfolio I thought was brilliant. But they're not really that tech savvy. They need a technology integration specialist. They need somebody who really understands the tech. I went into their uh, social, their, it's not social media. I went into their uh, multimedia class, and they were doing a project that required that they create, um, you know, some kind of a, a multimedia presentation around Aesop's Fables. And I said, oh, that's great. Is that being taught in another class? And he said, no, I just chose that. So I asked if there was any connection between the projects they were doing in the multimedia lab with the other classes, and there was not, which surprised me as well. It seemed like that would have been a you know, really natural thing to do. But I will tell you, I walked away from that school thinking, I wish it were closer. My kids would be going here. OK, so uh, I think uh, Michael Horn 
was probably not as dynamic a speaker um, as, as we heard in some of the other speakers. Um, I am going to have Michael on the Future of Education show um, later in May. Um, putting aside maybe the comparison with the other keynotes, which is, which is a tough comparison, what about the material in Disrupting Class? Is that material resonating uh, with you and or with the, tech, the decision makers in your districts? There. Um, I had actually uh, read Disrupting Class quite a while ago, and then it started just popping up everywhere when I went to Google Teacher Academy. That was in the giveaway bag. Um, actually, at the Celebration of Teaching and Learning, which I went to right before COSIN, they were giving away copies of that to all the presenters and stuff. It was everywhere. And um, when I had started reading it, I think I was two chapters in, I literally bought a copy and sent it to my superintendent. And two days later, it came back to me in my inner office mail with a note from his secretary saying, Dr. McNaughton has his own copy now. Um, I think it's a powerful book. I think it's a book that will be um, accepted by more people than others of its ilk because of the fact that it doesn't tear down education. He basically says, you know, consider, considering what they've been asked to do, they've been doing a pretty good job, but, but here's what's got to happen. So. Um, I think it's going to resonate with, with a lot of the corners that have been resistant in the past. So is there a little bit of irony in that book that, in fact, if he's right, it won't matter <laughs> that people actually read the book? I, I don't feel it's a case of it won't matter that people don't read the book. I think having the awareness and the um, that lens to look through, it, that lens with which to start making decisions might ease the way for some and get some there sooner, even if it's an incremental steps. Like, I, I think that book could influence just the professional development discussion we had a little earlier of, you know, maybe we need to do it differently. Maybe we need to stop trying to work it into the school day or into the academic year and have, have it happen in some kind of a, a disruptive manner, i.e., in second life. I mean, just the little, little um, baby steps towards that disruption. I keep thinking about how, you know, they describe in the book that for those who are in the industry about to be disrupted, they're making the right decisions. I mean, it's almost impossible to actually make the decisions that would lead to the disruptive force because that's part of a larger ecosystem where there can be a lot of experimentation, there can be a lot of failure. But for the industry or the organization, they're making the right choice. It's just that they're going to be disrupted. And maybe right needs to be clarified in that circumstance. I mean, they're making the logical choice. OK, so we've got about uh, 15 minutes left. We don't have to fill up the 15 minutes. If we're done, we're done. But was there anything else that you wanted to talk about with regard to your experience at COSIN or um, uh, just in general with regard to these kind of conferences, where they're headed, uh, you know, what, what can we expect? Can we actually expect, if, if, if conferences are the equivalent of the classroom, meaning if, they, if, they, if what we do at conferences is a mirror of what takes place in the classroom, can we really expect the conferences to become more interactive? That's an interesting That's question um, about what you're saying, Steve. Uh, it's that's tough. I mean, I think I think you need to have some. Obviously, uh, you have some people standing up there and talking about what is they're doing and sharing. But I think what you said earlier, you go to a Web Two conference or to any technology conference these days, there has to be that Web Two factor in there somewhere, somewhere, somehow figure out how to integrate it and get people at that conference to use it. And I was reading comments earlier, uh, uh, Jackie, um, you were saying, I believe there's a high moan factor for standard in-services, and I just wanted to comment on that. Um, we've had some in-service, uh, Jill and I, uh, recently on the Web 2.0 things, and people leave, and the comments are just uh, tremendous in that they love what it is that we're showing them. And, and wow, this this was the best insurance I've had in years and things like that. So and, and thanking us for giving them the time to use the tools and play around with the technology 
right. before they leave. It's almost like I'm yeah. thinking of conferences now. It almost needs to be a bring your own laptop because we're going to talk about it just like we were doing, and then let's try it for 15, 20 minutes and experience a little bit, not just talk about it. Anyway, those are just a few thoughts. So the notes I made were, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about learner-centric environments, how would you actually have a conference be learner-centric? And I think uh, some of the stuff we're doing with unconferences and entry blogger con and the Classroom 2.0 live workshops are maybe my attempt to go that direction. But, um, you know, if, if in fact what we're talking about learning in the classroom were to be applied to conferences, what would we do differently? Could you ask that question again, Steve, please? So if we were going to take the, the kind of learner-centric models that we're talking about for the classroom, project-based learning, um, if we were to take those and apply them to conferences, what would a conference look like? So Jackie's uh, mentioning the Web 2.0 panel we did at Q that it had <laughs> maybe 15 people in it. Yeah, I mean, I, Jack, I did not feel like a failure. I felt like I did a reasonable job. And I actually like holding a panel that way and really involving the audience. But uh, certainly, I don't, we did not get much of a group that day. So how do you uh, get people to come? I, I, it's kind of a rhetorical question. How do you get them to come and talk about it without having some point where, you, where we do stand up in front of them and just talk about it, where they you know, um, I don't know, if you can somehow follow up with with something that you've done at a conference. Uh, boy, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough question. I guess I don't know what the answer is to that, other than to just be aware of it and uh, and move on from there. Boy, I mean, there's a million dollar question maybe, is how, how to make these conferences more like a web tool environment and interact with, with the audience somehow and have reliable internet too. That's That's always helpful. Yeah, I think call it, saying Web 2.0 is maybe not, um, not not really what we mean, which is just that we're wanting to make them participative. And I guess the question is, you know, would you have to sort of design, redesign a conference from the ground up if you were really going to make it learner-centric? You know, would you change the model? Would you, you know, part of the problem is we have people submit proposals nine months in advance. You know, you're... you're the whole system is geared around a traditional model of learning, which is teacher-centric and not learner-centric. So that, I'm going to definitely be thinking about that tonight. You know, if, is EduBloggerCon or is the unconference or the bar camp model uh, number one? Is it is it the the right next step to be modeling what what can take place in the classroom? And number two is if you held it, would anybody come? I mean. Uh, I guess I guess I, I know a little bit of the answer to that, which is we've had some success with EduBloggerCon, but can it really actually be exploded to a larger uh, larger audience? And with that in my head, and I'm thinking, how cool would it be for a uh, a well-known conference, um, one that already has a reputation, to turn it and turn the tables on people? And rather than shooting out a call for proposals nine months beforehand, shoot out a call for what do you want at your conference, and then gather that data, and then go find the people to do it. You know, we're going to hold the conference. You're designing it this year. Has anybody looked at uh, South by Southwest? Peggy, are you familiar with how they oh, yeah. they do that? Yeah. So uh -huh. they actually yeah. have people. They actually have the audience vote is a part of the process of what sessions are going to be done. That's not a full-on conference, but there is actually an audience participation in the selection of the uh, events or sessions. It seems like such a no-brainer when we say it. I mean, NECC, I think, has been really great about this. I mean, they've supported the DublogerCon. They're letting me do something called NECC Unplugged this year again, which is a series of sessions that people just sign up to give and anybody can sign up to give them. So I think that NECC has been the best example so far. But doesn't it seem like a no-brainer that if you actually let people vote on the sessions, they'd be more inclined to come, like American Idol? You know, you, you get to vote on what you want and then you end up buying the end product? Probably, there's probably some connection here to the almighty dollar. 
uh, in, in terms of supporters and what have you. Like even NACC will will have you know a foundation of um, vendor support and vendor presentations and you know Promethean and Pearson and what have you. Um, so it, it, it might be very and South by Southwest, although they do have that participatory piece on the web about you know, selecting the presentations. I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard that basically that's that's kind of a they throw it out there, but the decisions are really made by the inner sanctum. <laughs> I don't know how true that is or what. They're really getting it to be a grassroots, um, you're going to design the conference, and we're going to go find the best experts in, in those areas to, to come and service you that day. Um, I, I think that would be incredible. So Jackie, thanks for that link. I'm definitely going to go look at it. So we've only got a couple minutes left. David Jakes, you've come in late. Is there anything you wanted to add? Anybody else want to say anything before we wrap up for the evening? Oh, Kim, you came in kind of late too. Did you want to say anything? Hi, my name is Corey and Jill. We just wanted to thank you for this opportunity. And just and we are constantly learning. We're both learners. Uh, if you've taken the Gallup polls, are we not? Um, and, and we appreciate uh, everything. Uh, thank you, Steve, for sending that up and everyone else for your comments. And uh, we'll continue to do this. I um, hope to see all of you out there, uh, whether it's in the virtual world or at a conference or on Twitter. But thank you again from Nebraska. Yeah, thank you. Go ahead, Peggy. Peggy, did you want to say something? So let me just express appreciation uh, to KnowledgeWorks for the Future of Education series and for Illuminate, to Illuminate for providing this room. This was a nice uh, small group, but I really felt like uh, we talked about some fun and interesting things for me. And so I really appreciate your being here, taking some time on a Wednesday night. Um, we're not always going to have huge crowds, and, and I think um, uh, the discussion wasn't any less interesting because of the size of the group. I got some good takeaways. I will post the recording and the chat recording uh, on the futureofeducation.com website. And we'll look forward to future fun events. Thanks, everybody.